Bishop Green, thank you for that introduction. It is a genuine honor to be here to preach today. I bring heartfelt greetings from First Church in Cambridge Congregational United Church of Christ and also heartfelt thanks for the ways that Bishop and PTC have welcomed me and others to join your Tuesday prayer calls. And I also want to thank that amazing music team. You got me. You, the spirit opened something up in me earlier. I was crying like a baby. And then you had me like shouting and dancing and feeling this joy in my bones. Thank you so much. I haven't been getting out much. And that was a gift of the spirit uh, to me. Um, and I'm sure to everyone else, too. Thank you. These past uh, long months of those prayer calls have been a great blessing and balm for us and a chance to learn from one of the true charisms of PT, a gift of communal prayer you all have. I love the way you all pray constantly and without ceasing. I love what God is doing here, and I love your definition of biblical justice. See if I have this right. Removing every obstacle and providing every opportunity for people to flourish and accomplish their God-given purpose. And it's in that light that I take to heart the bishop's invitation for me to speak today and to share some of First Church's journey towards racial justice and reparations. Spirit has led me to a text for this first Sunday of Lent from the Gospel according to Mark. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn apart and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Will you pray with me, please? Come, Holy Spirit. Take my mind and think through it. Take my lips and speak through them. Take all of our hearts and set them on fire for Jesus' sake. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. May they glorify and praise your name. Amen. I was looking way up there, and he just told me to look down there. That, that helps. Thank you. <laughs> All right. There we go. I'm looking at you. So there's a word I've been thinking about a lot lately, and it often comes to mind at the beginning of Lent. And that word is surrender. This makes sense a little bit. What am I willing to give up this time around, right? Booze, or sugar snide remarks, but it's not that kind of surrender, not this year. 
And it's not the surrender of submission to an enemy. It's more a surrender to God's power and truth and love. A surrender to God's word and ways and will. You see, when I start with this word, when I pray this word in the mornings, God, help me surrender. It's become my way of saying, God, help me give up my words, my ways, and my will. Help me to give up my agenda and listen for yours. Help me to give up my needs for recognition and control and give those to you where they belong. And along with it, more and more. Help me to surrender my power and my privilege and to trust God that you will provide. Now, I realize these ideas are not new. But in the context of our racial justice journey, as a white man leading a predominantly white congregation, this word surrender has lately taken on a deeper meaning and challenge. And it's led me to balance my sometimes overly activist instincts with a more contemplative, prayerful approach. And again, PT, thank you for what you have taught me and what you have taught us about the power of prayer. The title of my sermon today is The Quiet Hush of Surrender. It comes from Howard Thurman's amazing and deeply prayerful rendition of Psalm 139. And after that amazing music, I'm sorry, we're going to shift gears a little bit and just sort of enter into this space of a quiet hush of surrender. As you know, Thurman was the dean of Marsh Chapel at Boston University just down the street and across the river. He was a spiritual mentor of Dr. Martin Luther King. Here's an excerpt. Thou hast searched me and known me. In all places where the surge of strength has spent itself in great concentration and I have been left a shaking reed in the wind. Where hope has mounted until from its quivering height I have seen the glory and the wonder of the new dawn of great, awake, of great awakening. And my favorite line. Where the quiet hush of surrender envelops me in the great silence of intimate commitment. Thou hast known me. I love that phrase where the quiet hush of surrender envelops me in the great silence of intimate commitment. And today I invite us all to contemplate what this quiet hush of surrender might look like as part of our different and shared journeys towards biblical justice. Let's turn to our scripture. As I shared on a recent prayer call with some of you, Mark's account has Jesus in the Spirit moving fast in chapter 1. It's action-packed, not especially quiet or contemplative, but I love how succinct and urgent the message is here. And I love how it frames the early days of Jesus' own journey of surrender. In just five verses, 
We have his baptism, the temptation in the wilderness, and then the beginning of his public ministry. But since we aren't Jesus, I'd like us to slow it down a bit, especially since some of us are apt to get stuck in that wilderness for more than 40 days. I don't know about you all, but for me, it's felt like it's been Lent all year long. Lent and wilderness, far longer than 40 days. But let's start, let's start with the baptism. In those days, we know that John offered a Jewish baptism of teshuvah, which is the Hebrew word for repentance. I bet the bishop has shared this with you. The Hebrew literally means turning. True repentance is all about turning away from our sin and separation, turning towards proximity and closeness with God, towards our neighbor, towards our truest selves. Jesus chooses this baptism. He could have held himself above and apart from it, not needing repentance himself, Instead, he acts out of remarkable solidarity with our sinful humanity. One could say he momentarily surrenders his unique status as the Son of God and lets himself be all the more enveloped in the intimate commitment with God and humanity. Imagine the quiet hush of that moment in the Jordan just before he rises from the water and the Spirit descends on him Thou hast surely searched him and known him. And what does the Spirit say? You are my beloved. Jesus shows us here that any journey and turning towards God begins with honest, truth-telling recognition and repentance of our sin and our brokenness. The story also makes it clear, though, that God is always ready to turn towards us, <coughs> offering us those freeing words of grace-filled assurance. You are beloved. You are beloved, Carmen. You are beloved. So why start here? In our journey towards racial justice at First Church, we too have needed to begin our work in truth-telling repentance which we wouldn't, wouldn't and couldn't do with any real honesty without the sense of our fundamental baptismal belovedness. We'd be lost in our first step. The recognition didn't come to us right away. It's evolved within us. Since 2008 or so, our congregation has been talking a lot about racial justice. It's been one of our highest priorities we started and have continued with book studies and Bible studies and film series and what our denomination then called Sacred Conversations on Race. We participated in efforts to build connections with various communities of color. We've crossed over the river for justice-making meetings in black churches in Roxbury and Dorchester and Mattapan. We've been trying to find our way for a while now. But I don't think we really found ourselves stepping into the water, stepping into that river of repentance with Jesus until just a few years ago. And I could almost pinpoint the shift. 
It happened when we began to understand that systemic racism and white supremacy is not just something out there, a topic to be learned about and discussed, a problem to be solved, some personal behavior to be changed. No. Recently, we've been understanding more and more that the sin of white supremacy, our nation's so-called original sin, it's in here. It's inside of us. And indeed, it's part of all of our stories, and it's most definitely part of our story and history at First Church. A few years back, when we were preparing to celebrate our 375th anniversary as the first church in Cambridge, I was thumbing through our membership records. We knew there were names of Harvard's earliest presidents and professors there, of those who helped settle nearby towns. Yet underneath those all too storied and yet beloved names who were members in full communion, there was a second class of those who were merely baptized and owned the covenant. I brought a slide so you can see what I mean. In 1705, for example, almost 80 years before slavery was declared illegal by the Commonwealth, you can see our records here list Mingo and Charles, ye Negro servants of Mr. Town. Jeffrey, ye Negro servant of Mr. Goff. We've been combing our records and trying to better understand and own this history ever since. There we were. And here we are, standing in the same river of baptism with enslaved persons, with beloved siblings who were held captive and deemed property by our forebears on this very land that was never theirs or ours to begin with, right here in Cambridge. We discovered the names of 36 enslaved persons, 33 of African descent, three indigenous persons who were members who owned the covenant, and many more who were listed throughout our, our membership records and our, our meeting minutes. Names like Juba, Cuffy, Titus, Jane, Scipio, I could go on, and we now read them in our worship services every so often, along with a litany of reckoning and repentance. I wonder how many of you have been watching the incredible PBS documentary by Henry Louis Gates this week about the black church. It's called, This is Our Story and This is Our Song. I can only imagine the pain and trauma endured by those communities of faith, and yet there's surely pride, too, in seeing that amazing story of faith-filled resilience and resistance unfold across the generations. And it also leaves me to wonder, what of our story? The story of the white church, writ large, and the story of First Church. For us, it's meant sitting with the confounding knowledge that several of my First Church predecessors were at once 
ministers of the gospels and enslavers. It's meant standing in a quiet hush, at least at first, of lamentation and shame at the grave site of Sicily. Can we show that slide? Sicily was one of two girls enslaved by First Church members that are buried with headstones in the old burying ground a block away from our sanctuary. I have been walking by and sometimes through that cemetery for almost 20 years, having no idea there were any enslaved persons in Cambridge, let alone ones who were buried in plain sight and who were connected with my congregation. It reads, here lies Sicily, the Negro servant of the late Reverend William Brattle. He was our fifth minister. We know that name. It's commemorated and emblazoned all over Harvard Square, while Sicily is barely known, let alone honor. It's meant learning that First Church was centrist, at best mostly silent during the Civil War. Most importantly, it's meant struggling with the ways that our members and I continue to profit and benefit economically from the living legacy of slavery and racial inequality. It is in us to think that this, this is our story, at least a big and mostly untold part of it. This is our story of centuries of violence perpetrated of fear and complicity. This is our story, and it's utterly anathema to the gospel of Jesus. Suffice it to say that this reckoning with what is inside us, with what we've been a part of, has been part of our racial justice journey and of what feels like an ongoing baptism of repentance. It's also what's driven to us to a new kind of spiritual wilderness. To the extent that our church, city, and country have barely begun the work of truth-telling repentance, far from 40 days, many of us are still living in the midst of 400 years of wilderness of white supremacy. And we have yet to say, get thee behind me, Satan. Since the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, since the dual pandemics of COVID-19 and COVID-1619, as Reverend Otis Moss III has called it, we are now wrestling all the more. The work begins in repentance, but by God's grace, we have not been stuck in guilt or shame. We know that that doesn't get anyone anywhere. Instead, we now found ourselves in a wilderness of trying to figure out what to do next. Someone recently told me that white anti-racism work can get warped if white people don't love themselves first. Let me say that again. White anti-racism work can get warped if white people don't love themselves first. Warped, no doubt, 
by our temptations to try to do something to assuage our profound discomfort or maybe some guilt or shame that is so deep down we don't even want to recognize it, warped when we can't find the courage to surrender our agendas, our power, our privilege, our wealth, warped when we can't see that our own freedom and joy and healing and liberation is inextricably bound together with that of our neighbors. Still wet behind the ears that carried the message of his own belovedness, Jesus was driven by the Spirit into a desert wilderness. Can we get that up there? And there he did what we are just barely beginning to do. He surrendered his human inclinations for power and control and put his trust in God. As we've journeyed through this wilderness together, we've been trying to learn everything we can about the devil's work in our history. We've mostly stayed in that lane of intellectual curiosity and learning and discussion that's so familiar to so many folks here in Cambridge. But about 50 of us have had the opportunity to move into a more embodied approach. In 2017, I led our youth group on a pilgrimage to see civil rights sites and to understand our, our nation's history better. I think we have a photo of this. My two kids, Nellie and Julian, are in this picture. And the tall blonde kid in the back. He is a German foreign exchange student. And two days into this trip, it dawned on him. And he pulled me aside and he said, wow, y'all haven't even begun to do this work yet, have you? I said, no, we haven't. He said, in Germany, they start teaching us about racial terror and the Holocaust in grade school. And it's in our curriculum every single year. If only that were the case here. If only our schools taught us the whole truth. We've led three more pilgrimages since, our adult, since for our adult members to Memphis, to Birmingham, to Selma, and Montgomery, and a few months before the pandemic to Washington, D.C., and standing on the shores of the Mississippi, the Alabama, the Potomac River, standing on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, we've learned to see and experience our nation's history with new eyes, to hear about the generations of harm and trauma caused. One of the most compelling stops was to the astounding new National Memorial to Peace and Justice, the Lynching Memorial in Montgomery. On my first visit there, a line that Dr. King would often quote came to me. The truth crushed to earth will rise again. And I felt it down there. Early on, even before they had broken ground, we had saw the, we, our kids had seen a video of it, and I felt it. The truth crushed to earth was rising through the incredible work of Brian Stevenson's Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery. If you don't know it, check it out. It's got an amazing website. Through its haunting, hanging pillars, the memorial silently and exquisitely shares the story of thousands of lynchings, throughout the South, and yet it doesn't stop with remembrance. It makes an ask of visitors 
to bring duplicate memorial pillars back and place them in prominent places in their very towns and cities where the lynchings took place, forcing communities all throughout the South to reckon and hopefully to repent of these horrendous stories of racial terror. It left us to wonder, what does that rising truth of First Church's story, that rising truth of Cambridge's story, because the two go hand in hand, what does that rising truth ask us to do? And here is where the temptation of our white supremacist ways has been the most powerful. After all that, people are saying in my congregation, we've got to do something. Got to do something. Yes, and. A writer named Sarah Ahmed puts it this way. The impulse towards action can work to block hearing about racism. In moving on from the present towards the future, it can also move us away from hearing. In other words, the desire to act, to move, even to move on, can stop the message from getting through. I've got a case in point. About a year and a half ago, a small group of us thought we had done enough research we had done enough homework that we could probably use our connections in City Hall and hire a local artist or designer of color who could help us create a community process for public remembrance and reparations. And those two have always been linked in my mind, remembrance and reparations. We knew we needed help and accountability partners, that it couldn't be all about us or what we wanted. Yet thanks to two wise and spiritually grounded women of color with whom we were working, Sadata Jackson and Carlene Griffith Seku, we learned that we weren't as ready as we thought. Days before we were about to release our carefully crafted 14-page request for proposal, we were told the work was still too much about us. We were told we needed to slow down or we'd do harm if we didn't learn to decenter ourselves from the project and to center voices of those who had been most harmed by this history. Some of us were a little defensive at first. We pushed back, are you sure? I'm working so hard. My white fragility on full display when I first heard this. But soon, like a day or two, we realized we needed to shift gears. Listen to Carlene. We hired her to lead seven focus groups so we could hear more from diverse groups. We threw out the RFP, chucked it, and boiled it down to one-page description of our efforts towards remembrance and repair without any specific recommendations, she led a group of black moms who have chosen to homeschool their kids. She led a group of formerly incarcerated men, a group of homeless folks who come to our Friday Cafe meal program. 
We stayed out of the conversation so that they could speak freely. We paid participants for their time. And given COVID, we are just now getting the reports back. And we are eager to listen and to learn, to build what we hope are ongoing relationships so that we can step back and invite them to help shape where we go next. For this to be truly transformative, we learned we had to do it in a different way. And we'll see what happens next. So all this leads me to wonder again, what do we need to surrender to allow this sacred work to take hold in our community? I wonder how this question lands for you at PTC. I have no idea. I know a few of you a little bit, but most of you I don't know. Is it a need to surrender some resistance you may be rightfully feeling towards hearing a white dude try to preach in this message in a congregation as beautifully and globally multiracial as PT? Is it an invitation to surrender some disbelief or doubt that this work can actually lead us somewhere new and impactful? Is it to give up our chronos sense of time, thinking that it's too little too late or too much too soon? Do we need to surrender to God's kairos time? And a final wondering, is now the time for our white and black churches to come together, to bring our vastly different stories together and to discover what is God's story for ours and for future generations in Cambridge. Let's go back to the text once more. After the baptism, after the wilderness, Jesus is ready to begin his public and prophetic ministry, and we know the world-transforming impact of that. As his followers, what does a genuinely public, genuinely prophetic ministry of racial justice in his name look like for us? <clears throat> At First Church, we hope that our time in the wilderness may be leading us to turn away from our false selves, to turn ever more towards God and our neighbors in a more public-facing ministry. We know it will require acts of public repentance, including land acknowledgement. We know it will require ongoing relinquishment of our agendas, ongoing accountability from those communities who have been most harmed. We know it will require trusting relationship and willing and forgiving partners for the next time we make a misstep, which we surely will. We also know it will require sharing our resources and making some form of tangible reparations. Over 60 of us at First Church have already committed to some or all parts of an online reparations pledge through a New York group called the Fellowship of Reconciliation. I think we have a slide for this. Check out how this begins. We won't read them all. There are a few other slides, and you, you, can, you can play them as I, as I keep going here. But the beginning of this one. I pledge to approach reparations as a spiritual journey that speaks to my own humanity and liberation of myself with those most impacted. 
a spiritual practice of reparation, not just some check writing. And the list goes on for a few more slides. How is this going, you may ask, these people who have committed to this? Well, it's going. A group of about 10 of us have been meeting regularly in what we are calling a reparations accountability group to share where we are on our individual journeys to honor this pledge. Therapists, white therapists, giving weekly sessions pro bono to several clients of color. Another white woman in our congregation offered to pay off student loans of a black relative. At first, the offer was declined, but then it was framed as an act of reparation. And her relative says, well, since you put it that way, yes. My wife and I have been sharing money with a black friend and his family who barely get by on his salary as a court bailiff. One night, we're sitting around our kitchen table enjoying a meal together. We offer to help pay his monthly rent as part of our practice of, as our own practice of reparations. And right away, he said, nope, I'm good on the rent. But after all the bills are paid, I'm never able to put anything away for savings. He asked us to open a savings account for him. He puts in, we put in. We never would have thought of that. But it turns out to be like a version of what Michael Eric Dyson calls an IRA. We know what that is, individual retirement account? No, an individual reparations account, which he invites white folks to take on and create. Now, he and we both contribute. It's making, him easier, making it easier for him to save for his plans of home ownership. So these are just a few small ideas. And to be clear, these are merely experiments at the moment, some working better than others, but we're also discussing different ways our church can make reparations. And we are waiting for those relationships to grow, for God to show us a way. So this, too, is our story. But imagine what could we do together? Maybe God wants us to form a black, indigenous, person of color-led, multiracial coalition. Cambridge is already a sanctuary city. Maybe it's time we make it a reparations city. And while we are at it, we can support the heretofore long-languishing federal H.R. 40, the Commission to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals, proposals for African Americans Act, just this past week, has been revived in the House of Representatives with strong support, including from Pelosi. Let's make it a national drive. We are still in the wilderness, but that public and prophetic ministry is calling us forward, and we are trying to listen and learn where the Spirit is leading us next. What is the harm that needs tending to? What have we taken that we need to give back? How can we overturn the tables, even in our own church? Whatever it is, we can't do it alone. It can't be about us. We need each other. We need the Spirit to lead the way. And we would welcome the chance to work with you, P.T., Jesus has given us the map from the Jordan to the desert. 
to the Galilee and beyond. He has showed us the way and the truth and the life that is really life. From baptisms of repentance in God's holy rivers of love through a wilderness of relinquishment and relationship into a shared public ministry in Jesus' name. Ours is an awesome God of amazing grace in whom all things are possible. From that quiet hush of surrender, I believe God's power, God's love, God's truth will envelop us all the more and ever deeper, more intimate, ongoing commitment. I believe that we too can hear and heed the call of the great prophet Isaiah to rebuild ancient ruins, to raise up the foundations of many generations, to be repairers of the breach, the restorers of the streets to live in. Thanks be to God. May it be so. Amen.